We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of The Earthling on July 24th, 1980. It was written by Lainey Kotler, directed by Peter Collinson, and released by Filmways Pictures. Peter Sellers died today. I don't think that's true. 40 years ago today. Okay. <laughs> shot in Warrumbungle National Park in he New South shot. Wales. <laughs> yeah. People forget it's shot in Warrumbungle National Park. Um, no, this film, in striking contrast with Mr. Sellers, was shot in Warrumbungle National Park in New South Wales, Australia. At the time, it was the most expensive Australian film ever made getting a lot of mileage out of peter seller's death <laughs> at the hands of an angry australian ranger <laughs> i don't know how this movie could have been the most i mean i guess they just didn't shoot movies there because this there's movie, only one shot that's conceivably expensive. there's like two characters and the whole thing takes place outdoors there's yeah. no budget but, needed but, but there are like hundreds of wild animals yeah there were there must have been a huge budget for let's put wild animals in every single shot and almost every shot is a crane shot mm -hmm. the whole time they're outside i guess that's I can... true i didn't really think much about that and the places that they were putting that crane yeah would have been difficult yeah um but more expensive than mad max Yes, but it only cost $5 million. But that was the most expensive movie at the time. But to be fair, Mad Max paid all of its people in beer. That's true. And <laughs> surgery, right? And wasn't surgery. like George Miller like doing <laughs> surgery out of his van? Well, they didn't pay people in surgery. <laughs> well, he he built up the budget. Just come be in my movie. I'll give you a breast job. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure someone would have taken him up on that. <laughs> Apparently, director Peter Collinson was especially harsh on child actor Ricky Schroeder, and William Holden quickly came to his defense. Over the course of the production, Holden and Schroeder bonded very closely, and Schroeder named his first son Holden in his memory. Oh, that's nice. This is the final film of director Peter Collinson, who died of lung cancer five months after its release, and less than a year later, Holden also passed away. We start the film with the sun rising over Australian wilderness, and we see a plane from Los Angeles landing. A customs agent asks Patrick Foley the purpose of his visit, and he says, uh, Passing through. I don't know if that's acceptable. Is I, it? I don't know. It, you usually say business or pleasure, but passing through uh, is code for dying of cancer. You're allowed to say that. I mean, I guess you can't really stop someone from entering your country in order to die. Yeah. Like. I'm here to litter your national parks. Uh, yeah, I mean, corpse. like, well, I guess he was from there, right? He was uh, born in yeah. Australia, yeah. But if you were, could you go to another country and says, I'm, I'm, come, I'm entering your country in which to, to die here? Yeah. This is my to, final To not seek medical attention, but to just die. I don't know. I wonder if that's allowed. I don't know why we would expressly say that. I'm here for pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. The sweet embrace of death. <laughs> yes. A bus takes Foley to the town he left early in his life. It drops him off in the middle of the woods. It seems really annoyed, too. Yeah. The driver, like, that he had to drive this one person all the way out here to yeah. drop him off. 
And from where we see him get dropped off, it looks like there's nothing anywhere nearby. But uh, he has to walk from this stop. He hitches a ride with a passing trucker. The trucker tells him that the place he's headed has changed a lot since he was last here and he won't even recognize it. And he agrees. The driver stops for a beer at a roadside diner and while they're stopped, Foley decides to get out of the truck and walks past the diner on the outside and inside some people notice him and recognize him because like I said, he's from here. Apparently a long ways back, he saved the life of a local man named Christian by carrying him 50 miles to safety. I don't know if that was in a war it felt like it, the context felt accident. like it was in a war. Yeah. Mm-hmm. An RV pulls up behind the parked truck and a bickering couple moves inside to eat. Their son Ricky Schroeder as Sean Daly sits outside while a young girl, Schroeder's own sister, playing this character, fills the tank on the vehicle. Sean is enticed by a sleeping man's leather pouch but is caught trying to take it and returns it awkwardly. Foley approaches Christian's farm looking for him and stops for a minute to catch his breath and take some medicine. A woman at the farm recognizes him and is worried to see him clutching his chest like this and taking pills because she knows exactly what's going on. Foley eventually finds Christian in a barn with a big blowtorch breaking down this huge piece of metal. I'm not sure what this thing is that he's it seemed like breaking a, apart. I think it was maybe a train? Yeah, uh, something like the, that. Because the covering felt like, you know, a train station at the, sort of mm. the end of the tracks. Yeah, but he... Uh, He's taking it apart to sell for pieces, I guess, or maybe just for the metal. And he seems very shocked to see Foley. Foley tells Christian that he's headed up to his dad's farm to lay the ghosts, which might be code for dying or for visiting with the ghosts of his past there, or maybe he's literally planning sex with ghosts. I don't know. (laughs) Christian asks when he'll be back, and Foley reiterates, I love you, Christian, but you don't hear. You just don't listen. I'm not coming back this way. Fully grasping his words, Christian chases him, trying to convince him to spend his last days here with Christian and Meg, the woman who noticed him earlier. Christian calls him a coward for running out on them and himself, and Meg Mitries takes this moment to interrupt their argument and lighten the mood a bit. Christian asks if he's taking medicine, and he pulls it out of his pocket and tosses it into a nearby fire, and Christian scrambles to get the medicine out of the fire to read morphine on the bottle. Christian tells Meg that he'll break Foley's legs before he lets him die alone in those woods. So he lets him go off alone. (laughs) So he lets him go off in the woods. uh, Two broken legs later. No, he doesn't do that. Foley moves on to the shack of a second friend, Bobby Burns. I feel like these two characters could easily have been combined into one character because it just confused me what his relationship was with the second person. Mm -hmm. Bobby asks, is that you or have I gone blind as well? Foley gifts Bobby a set of 30 hand-tied flies and a decorative bag, and Foley says that the Native American that he got it from says that the bag will keep evil spirits away. But not unlike the protective tribal artifact from our last William Holden movie, The Necklace and When Time Ran Out, it is provably ineffective. (laughs) As a parting gift, Bobby gifts Foley an older horse with instructions to set it free after he crosses a river on his way to the father's cabin. Don't ride this horse all the way to the cabin, whatever you do. This horse will explode on the other side of the river. Bobby takes a seat outside the same diner from earlier, and Sean notices this new protective bag. And Bobby sees him eyeing it for a bit and decides to offer it to the child. Now, is it a new bag? I thought the bag he took or tried to look at was from William Holden's bag that he left on the porch temporarily. I don't think he ever set it down. No. Okay. I think he walked directly to Christian's place from the diner. Yeah. it's. I mean, 
it is his bag and he gave it to his friend and then his friend brought it here and gave it right to but the kid okay. tried to steal a, a, different, a, bag a different bag earlier, bag earlier. oh but that was just on a sleeping man out in front of the diner and He's the guy really kept into it. decorative bags yeah. yeah but also how did how did bobby burns get back yeah that's, that confuses me how he got there so quickly. Well, they're just filling up the car. Yeah. <laughs> he, like... he walked to Christian's house and then to Bobby's house. Unless they're like right across the street, mm-hmm. then it's weird that he got back to this diner so fast. But maybe they are right there. Foley, true to his instructions, ditches the horse after the river and stops to watch it gleefully rolling in the mud on the banks. Foley considers taking a shortcut to the cabin. When we cut to the other American family with the RV, they've taken a break at a swimming hole for a picnic. And Sean is being a big baby about the cold water in the river while his dad is splashing around. Ruining their vacation. Sean's father pulls the RV right up to the edge of a sheer cliff face. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, what Yeah, are you doing? Not only that, but right when he pulls it up, the kid just hops out and nobody's screaming at him yet. And he's just running full speed towards this cliff. But the, the kid comes right up to the edge of it before his mom is able to catch up and reprimand him. And then the dad says... Chill out. I'll talk to him. You make us dinner. And after she leaves, he says, you know, your mother's right. (laughs) I'll move the trailer away from the cliff. So he goes to put the trailer in reverse, but it seems to slide forward anyway. Maybe it's parked at an imperceptible incline. Yeah. What I gather this must be happening is that it's a steeper incline that the engine has, doesn't have enough power to reverse, or there's not enough traction on the ground. And yeah. they didn't have a bunch of like weird locals like we do with little dragons to stick rocks under their right. tires yeah. to help them out. But it looks pretty flat uh, it, when it, he pulls up. Yeah, and generally reverse is a more powerful gear yeah. than, than forward. Which is why I always drive in reverse. <laughs> the father shouts for his wife to jump out of the trailer, but she is unable to before it topples over the edge of the cliff and falls in slow motion hundreds of feet to the inevitable demise of Sean's parents. He is not in the trailer. He's just watching it fall. Yeah, and it's just obliterated. Yeah. Uh, Somehow the kid gets to the trailer at the bottom of this ravine before the tires have even stopped spinning, which is impossible. That's still had his foot up in the gas. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> oh, God. Luckily for him, though, it landed on its roof, and the brutally smashed remains of his parents are completely locked from view. He can't get into this truck. He's just out here screaming for his mommy from atop the wreckage, and we follow the echoes to Patrick Foley standing on another nearby clifftop, taking in what he just watched happen. Sean finds the medicine bag in the wreckage, and he tucks it under his shirt, while he is slowly surrounded by the diverse wildlife of the Australian outback. He stops to drink water dripping down from above him, and we both joked that we would cut to William Holden just peeing off the cliff. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We see lizards and snakes and birds, all of which scare Sean back into this hidey hole near the RV, which I feel like the hole would be the worst place to go. Yeah, I was like, no, don't go into a hole. (laughs) Um, I like that we we even see, like, um, uh, opossums. Yeah, because uh, like opossums everywhere, but in America look adorable. Yeah, mm-hmm. but here in America they're, they're just, just like nightmare. screaming rats. Yeah, their faces look like uh, when Alec Baldwin is stretching his face out to scare the <laughs> Dietzes out of their home. When he gets inside, the wildlife seems to laugh at him for running away from them. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, the what's well, the, the kookaburras? Yeah, uh, I love kookaburra. Like they they make the most craziest sounds. In the middle of the night, he is overrun in his hole by a pack of rats, which he is desperately sweeping off of himself before running out into the river and what looks like early morning light already. So I guess he's been awake all night. He hears this repetitive clacking sound echo off the ravine walls and he follows it through the valley until he finds Foley crossing the river and coughing painfully. He creeps up on Foley while he sleeps later, intending to steal some food, but Foley catches him and tells him to fuck off, basically. Yeah. Well, I, he I, says you're too loud, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I also, like, I was like, what was this kid's plan? Like, why not just... Get this guy's help. Just yeah, call out to like, him. I mean, I guess we come to find out that he's, like, just totally, I guess, in shock and can't speak anymore. He isn't, though. Uh, that's what, kind of what bothers me about this performance is that... Just from one scene to another, he can speak in full sentences. I don't know if that's true. I don't know. He just went through a really traumatic experience. Yeah, but so, he's he when he's walking through the river to catch up with Foley, he's just saying, "Oh, the, the I'm out here by myself. What am I gonna do?" And then, like out loud, he's saying this. And then when he gets to the guy, he can't put two words together. He's mm. just stuttering, "Mommy, Daddy." Yeah, I mean, I don't think that it's a performance; it's a direction issue. Maybe, but but also. Why is he trying to avoid this person? Yeah. Like, he sees him, he sees fully walking, and he goes, oh, and stays hidden. Right. Wouldn't you be desperate for any adult to help you? Yeah, any adult. Like, I know, don't talk to strangers, but in this situation... Like, your parents are dead, and you're in the Australian wilderness. You gotta do something. We see Sean walking through the river, talking to himself for a while, despite later seemingly having lost the ability to speak. Foley also talks out loud to himself ruling out the options of leading the kid home or taking him with to the cabin. Again, Sean sneaks up on Foley as he's cooking a rabbit, and Foley says, if you want to share the fire, you fetch your own wood. And Sean grabs wood from a pile that Foley already made next to the fire, and he shouts, your own, to scare the kid away. Sean speaks only in annoying grunts for a while. He can't even tell Foley his name. The only words that he can choke out are, are the stuttered, mom, dad, dad. Dad. You guys are being really harsh to the kid whose parents just died. I'm not being harsh. I'm I, being harsh. I, 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 I don't like the back and forth. Okay. That, that, that's, that's, I, I understand if you went through a traumatic experience and yeah. from that traumatic experience. But you can't be a flip flopper. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You exactly. gotta be committed to the trauma. Yeah. Because it makes it seem like he's faking it when he's next to Foley when he can talk perfectly fine when Foley's not around. Foley talks him through how to use a stick as a compass, hoping to lead the kid north without having to accompany him. When Sean just stares blankly at the stick, Foley switches to the river as a point of reference, but it's no use. The kid is not going to stop following him. Sean wakes up alone again and follows the clacking sounds to Foley. It's not clear what's making this sound. He's banging rocks. He's banging rocks. On purpose? Yes. Yeah, it's something to do with his fishing technique. Cause oh, okay. He's up on the edge of a by the water, clacking, and I don't know if it's to spook the fish from under the water, or I don't know what the purpose is. Yeah. But it seems to be related to fishing. Oh, oh okay. I didn't. I didn't realize it was related to fishing. I thought it was sort of his way of leading the kid along, subtly saying, "Hey, kid, if you want to survive, you're you're like you got to take the initiative to do this." But so like follow this sound and you'll find me, you know, it's like so he's sort of leaving it in the kid's hands, but leading him along because I feel like it 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 links back to what happens at the end of the film. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I I do agree that it links back to that. But the first time we hear the clacking, 
it's right after the accident. Yeah. And and so I think at that point he was not even trying to get the not, kids attention. Yet. Yeah. I, I but I thought he was. I thought it was like he's like, look, I'm not going to take the sort of initiative to say I'm going to find you and I will take you on as my burden. He's sort of guiding him through. Maybe. Foley asked the kid his name again, and the kid just has a full-scale meltdown in the middle of the river, shouting, My name is! My name! My name is! Ah! My name! Foley somehow notices that the medicine bag that he's carrying is the one that he gave to, to Bobby earlier, and Sean explains that, Red Feather gave it to him and that it wards off evil spirits. Foley probably thought he stole the bag until the kid relayed some information that Bobby gave him and realizes that Bobby probably gave him the bag on purpose. Sean keeps asking for them to stop and eat, but Foley isn't interested and tells him to follow the river and leave. Somehow days later, the kid is still in shock and tells Foley that he just wants to get back to his parents, but Foley is very curt with him. Your mama's dead. And your papa's dead, and that's the hard truth. Just like my folks are dead. And someday you're going to die, just like someday I'm going to die. But until then, you fight like hell to stay alive, you get that? But even as he lectures the kid, he's recognizing his own hypocrisy and coming out here to succumb to death willingly instead of fighting. Sean finally musters up the ability to say his own name as Foley tries again to leave. Foley takes a moment to teach Sean some survival instincts, starting with using his ears to observe. He snatches a fish from the river with his bare hands, and the music here sounds a lot like Stardew Valley to me. It does. Later, Sean shows Foley some berries that he saw rabbits eating, and Foley gets the idea of using these berries to bait a trap. The next morning, Sean pulls a pair of rabbits from the traps they built and is returning to Foley when he's startled by an aborigine man. He crashes into the same man multiple times, once throwing a rabbit at him in self-defense. And he races panicked to Foley, who tells him that this is a good thing. Because he came back with one rabbit, and he threw one at this guy. And he says, you've shared food with the people that the white man has driven out. You should be proud. Sean wakes up alone yet again, and uses his newfound survival skills to track Foley down. He follows Foley, calling him a smelly bastard. You stink! You should take a bath! Who leaves super obvious footsteps, culminating with... Want to know my name? It's God! G-O-D! God! Suddenly a pack of wild dogs are hot on Sean's tail. (laughs) Uh, Foley tells him that he better run, and points to the dogs. He refuses to help the kid climb a very steep rock pile, insisting that the kid has to help himself. Eventually, he tells the kid that he's got a fire going at the top of this cliff, and if if he can get the rabbits up here in the next few minutes, they can split that rabbit. It's an insane cliff face, and I wonder how Foley would have justified it to himself if this kid had just fallen and died. Eaten by dogs. Well, well, I, I also like the negotiation of, it's like, I'll give you some of the rabbits. It's like, I want half. Yeah. <laughs> When the kid gets to the top, he is surprised to learn that Foley hadn't actually summoned a fire instantly. Assuming he would die. (laughs) Yeah. Foley admits that the dogs were after the rabbit, not Sean, so he might have died in his haste getting up the cliff face for no reason because he could have just dropped the rabbit to climb. Well, and he tells him that he should have known he was lying about the fire because he should have been able to smell it if he had lit a fire. Foley tries and fails to stab a wombat, 
His body is telling him that he needs fat, he says. Earlier, he took his fat in the form of grub worms that they ate with the fish. Foley sets a trap and watches an eagle land to collect fish he draped over a log above a field of kangaroos, and the trap springs on a wallaby. The mechanics of the trap apparently relied on an aborigine superstition that the fish he left out for the eagle were a way to ask for permission to catch this other animal, and consequently the eagle didn't warn the kangaroos away from the trap like it ordinarily would have. That's how this worked, apparently. Foley and Sean descend into the valley they've been looking for. Sounds like this valley is exactly where Sean's family was headed, but there's no way they could have made it here in the RV. They finally come to Wait, Foley's... Why do we think it's the valley that his parents were heading to? Because that's what the kid says at this point. He says, oh, this is the valley that they were telling us about. This is where we were trying to go. Or this is the valley that that old man was talking about to my dad. Oh, I didn't realize that they were trying to go there. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think the implication is that his parents were specifically looking for this beautiful place that someone had described to them. Hmm. But they got closer than they should have. <laughs> they finally come to Foley's father's cabin, or the skeletal remains of the cabin. It looks like it's been abandoned for a very long time. Foley reveals a bit more about his childhood. Apparently he left this place wanting more and regrets having left it behind. Sean catches and gets a fish on the riverside, and Foley is amused when Sean barks, Get your own fish! Because he's successfully turned him into a hermit. <laughs> Later, as Sean cooks the fish, Foley has sharp chest pains and pleads with himself for more time, or to God probably, for more time. Please. Uh, just a little while longer. Earlier, Foley told the kid that he had a hot bath waiting, and suddenly we see it. It's a natural hot spring right behind the house. And it's just pouring over the rocks. And this is this is where things start to get a little fantastic for me. I think this is made. I think this is a jacuzzi that they buried in rocks. And <laughs> this might have been part of the budget. Uh, but more so just with all of the animals that are lurking. Yeah. And, and <laughs> yes. I'm like, I feel like I'm watching Legend. Snow White, maybe? Yeah. yeah there's just like so much wildlife. Uh, I was speculating while I was watching it in that, is it because they've been living off the land and they just don't smell like people anymore? So the animals aren't afraid of them in that way? Or like because the, they've never seen a human. Yeah, and so they're just accepting yeah. that these other animals are around. They're not worried. Yeah. Maybe. But it's really amusing that when they do these like long, uh, slow pans, it's just like animal, 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 mm -hmm. animal, animal. And you just see like snake after bird after wallaby yeah. after, you know, mm -hmm. lizard that well, you're like sticking in every nook wombats. and cranny. But it's the whole sport. Australia wing of a zoo. <laughs> mm -hmm. when, when the kid was hiding from all the animals in the beginning, it was terrifying. Like, I never want to go to the Australian outback. Yeah. There are more deadly things per square foot in Australia than anywhere else in the world. Yeah. Like, I'm out. <laughs> and so weird because New Zealand is such a contrast. Where there's like no like venomous animals in New Zealand. Yeah. It's like the complete opposite. Humans are the only animal with teeth in all of New Zealand. I don't think that's accurate. No, it's not. But it, wouldn't that be neat? <laughs> wouldn't it be neat if they were toothless? <clears throat> Sean brings him leftovers and asks if Foley was ever married. Only once. She loved to dance. From the way he describes it, the woman was Meg and he never came back after the war. We get a montage of Sean antagonizing the local kangaroos. Foley tells Sean that they're probably going to go to the highest point nearby tomorrow and that Foley will point him north because he has to leave and he has to leave alone. He refuses to be as straightforward with his own conditions as he was about the kid's parents. I feel like he should have just been like, I'm dying. Yeah, he really should. It's 
there is no benefit to not telling this kid because what happens if you died right now? Yeah. Mm-hmm. On the hilltop beside the graves of his parents, Sean begs Foley to let him stay. And back at the house. Foley's parents. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> On the hilltop besides the graves of Foley's parents, Sean begs Foley to let him stay. They just put a headstone on the truck, and that's it. It was like, but it's like, wait a minute. If they were living out here by themselves, who buried the other one? Well, I think he said he buried both of them. Who? Foley says that. You lost your folks, and a lifetime ago, I lost mine. I buried them here. He stuck around long enough for both of his parents to die. Oh. And then he left. I thought he left, and they had died while he was gone. No. I don't know. I thought that he came back to bury them when they died. I All right, I, I, I miss that. But he does say something about how he buried them up there. And the fact that he buried both of them makes me think that he came back late and then had to put them both up there and bury them. Back at the house, Foley tries to level with the kid finally, and he collapses with his arms around Foley and declares his love. Foley regrets never telling his father the same. It's a shame that this climactic moment appears basically in full in the trailer because it might have been slightly more powerful had I not already seen all of it. Also, he never says that he loves him back. Yeah. Uh, so right, but it's another thing say, to regret on the way out. He does say, don't be afraid to, to show love. Don't yeah. be afraid to say you love someone. But he doesn't say back. <laughs> well, he's not afraid to. He just doesn't love He just love doesn't this love kid. the kid. Yeah. Uh, and then my next note is, wow, that's rough. <laughs> because we cut directly to Sean loading up rocks on a third grave beside Foley's parents, uh, which is obviously Foley's grave. And we're hearing the sound again of the rocks clacking together as he's piling them onto his dead friend. See, that's why I thought it was sort of more like he was intentionally calling him, sort of Mm -hmm. like this was calling you home. Like, I'm clacking for you now. As he buries his second father in a week, Foley's survivalist advice echoes in his head. He tops the rock pile with the medicine bag to protect Foley from evil spirits. And we end with a short montage of Sean capably guiding himself north under the film's theme song, Halfway Home. I think of you. Sung by Maureen McGovern, who we last saw as the nun with a guitar in Airplane, and who provided the themes to a couple Irwin Allen disaster movies, also starring William Holden. I get, I feel like this ending is a little ambiguous. Yeah. Yeah. In, in that is like, so is he going to go home? Because what does he have to go home to? Well, I actually was really hoping for a different ending. I was really hoping that we sort of cross-faded to the house rebuilt and a 20-something-year-old Sean having decided to stay here and live off mm-hmm. the land and, and do what Foley didn't. Yeah. yeah. That, that that's kind of like what I was hoping for too but we get him wandering off and I don't and we don't see him make it anywhere mm-hmm. and so it's like is he going back home no like, I, I think the implication is that he's fully capable of guiding himself now but to what end like I mean I, I assume he has uh, we, can, we can only assume that he has extended family who can care for him yeah but maybe he'll just stay here who knows I, I think it would have been interesting if we hear the same sound cue but it was fully putting rocks on a small grave. <laughs> like he was just like, look, if you're not going to leave, you're going to leave. But yeah, this was directed by Peter Collinson, who is probably best known for The Italian Job. Not a lot else I recognized. The writer Lanny Kotler had written Heartwood with Jason Robards and Hilary Swank. William Holden was Patrick Foley. We had him this year in When Time Ran Out. 
and he's also in Stalag 17, Hollywood Boulevard, Network, Towering Inferno. Ricky Schroeder was Sean Daly. We had him earlier this year in Last Flight of Noah's Ark. Mm -hmm. He was protecting the animals. I was really impressed with his performance. Yeah, he yeah. did a good job. I mean, and direction you, aside, I mean, yeah. you guys were upset about the, his flip flopping on, you know, how he expresses trauma. It's a script issue. But I think that I I was really blown away by how earnest and sincere yes. all of his line deliveries were. Like especially when he was, you know, frustrated, and then connected. and he couldn't say his name in the river. Yeah, and then he and then later his connections with you yeah. know, with Foley was amazing. Yep, um, he had previously appeared in The Champ with John Voight, and later he had a role on NYPD Blue. He was a regular cast character. Uh, Jack Thompson was Ross Daly. That's Sean's father. He plays Major J.F. Thomas in Breaker Morant later this year. He had shot this just coming off of his Cannes Film Festival win for Best Supporting Actor for that performance. He plays a party guest in the movie Short Circuit. Hmm. And he's also Klee Lars in Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. Okay. <laughs> Don Gregg was Dalton, but she's credited here as Don Schroeder because that is Ricky Schroeder's sister. Uh, her only other major role was as a sorority girl at Squad Car in Night of the Creeps. This was her first film role and her only one alongside her brother. Sorry, she was which character? The girl who's filling the truck or the RV with gas. Okay, so she's not playing his sister here. Nope. She was just a girl at the gas station. Yes, correct. But they look Works very, at very the gas similar. Station? Yeah. Presumably. But they both have like platinum blonde hair. Okay. Mm -hmm. Maggie Blinko played Jessica. Not sure who that was, but she played Ida in both Crocodile Dundees. Uh, well, I had uh, I wanted to bring up Tony Berry, who plays the uh, tow truck driver. Oh, okay. And I was like, oh, okay, great. Uh, I was hoping since this is an Australian production that we're gonna get actors from a specific australian movie that i love yeah i grew up knowing it as the quest but it's also been known as the frog dreaming and the go kids right with henry thomas um uh tony berry plays henry thomas's guardian in that movie oh okay gaza and he's got a v amazing voice but i know when I, he was talking is like that does not sound like him at Did they dub him all over? they dubbed a lot of the australian actors over the huh. only time you hear Tony Berry's actual voice is when there's just people talking in the restaurant. Hmm. And, and and it's like, because I'm like, oh, that's not Tony Berry's voice at all. But then when, when there's just like all the chatter inside the restaurant, you hear this really deep Australian voice. Like, there he is. There he is. <laughs> where, where have you been So hiding? he's in a couple of the scenes, but yeah. not in the scene where he's in the truck. Correct. On camera talking to him. Yeah. I was just like, that's so weird to do because his voice is very deep. Yeah. Um. And uh, so I just want to bring it up because I, I love I love the quest. It's a sure. fun Australian movie. Still when when did that it. came out? We have to watch uh, it. I believe it's eighty six. All right, yeah. got a few years. It's definitely post ET. Yeah, I enjoyed this film. I thought it was good. That, I liked it. My only complaint is that the the order of the kid coming out of shock and being able to speak seems wrong. It didn't bother me. I mean, when you're alone. You're going to express trauma differently than when you're with somebody who is trying to help you. Or I, I, I just I don't think you could blame a kid whose no. parents just died for how he's expressing himself. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. It just it came across as unrealistic to me. The, the way that and I'm not saying it's Ricky's fault, obviously. I'm saying it's the fault of the director or the writer. But yeah. What do you think? Just up or down on this one? Um, I'm giving it up. I, I really enjoyed it. I don't, I don't have the same complaints you do, so I really can't fault this movie for anything. 
Uh, I give it an up. I, I was pleasantly surprised. I thought this movie was going to be bad. Um, I thought it was going to be real bad, in fact. Yeah, I was anticipating it to be much worse. Um, <laughs> this one was free on uh, Prime, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's how I watched it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I was just like, this is actually a really nice movie. And uh, I was talking with it, uh, talking with it. I was talking with the movie. No, <laughs> I was talking. See, that's, that's a director problem. <laughs> Shouldn't be talking to a movie. Uh, I was talking about the movie with some friends earlier today. And I said, what's great about this story is that you could really just set it about anywhere. Mm-hmm. You yeah. could really just, you could, this could be set in space, like on an alien planet or like, like in a, in a desert, like any, like this story could be told in a number of different ways. Like if you wanted to, the story could be instead of like him coming back at the end of his life, it could be like his wife died and he wants to go to like paradise falls, like the place he's always wanted to go for his Mm -hmm. entire life. But then this kid stows away (laughs) his end of life adventure. And then uh, he has to like take care of this parentless kid. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, oh that happens that's a different movie <laughs> i wonder if pixar saw this also had some wild dogs in it <laughs> yeah <laughs> and they flew plane. no they didn't actually <laughs> but that movie could have done without flying dogs yeah yeah um and more zeppelin i don't know if flying dogs would have hurt the earthling though like what if was well, just one of them i mean flew. if they i think they would have hurt the earthling because he would have flown up that cliff and gotten the kid <laughs> It's weird that the words the earthling don't come up at all in the movie. Like, I I get the point that you're making. Like, oh, it's a person on the planet or whatever. But have someone make that point somewhere in the movie. It seems weird to call it the earthling. Yeah. It seems like they probably didn't want to call it something like Walkabout or uh, Crocodile Dundee. (laughs) Dead man hiking. The earthling, whenever I, again, whenever I talk about this movie with other people, because I have, I always have to. I always preface it's not about aliens, yeah, <laughs> or, or or anything about space. <laughs> right, that's funny. Yeah, I, f- I do feel like somewhere in the back of my head, I was I was like, are we gonna find out that someone's an alien before we started the movie? And then very quickly, you're, you're disillusioned of that idea. You're like, no, this is straightforward drama. Yeah, it's a weird choice of title, I think. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody at Pixar had seen this and was like, this is a sweet story. We could update this. Yeah. Especially with all the dogs chasing the kid at the end. I didn't even think about that until you brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> it does have a lot of crazy dogs trying to get the kid. Um, um, it was, uh, the Amazon version was in 4.3. But it, right. it appears as though it might not have been shot that way originally. Yeah, I think because the the last shot of the kid walking off, uh, which the credits come up on top of, goes into a wide frame. Right, because the credits are off-center and you couldn't have cropped that full shot to make it work properly as so, a single shot. I think it was probably shot uh, in like 235, like yeah. academic. And I do think it's weird, though, that the official cut that we could find of it, especially on Amazon, is not the original. Yeah, and every version that I could find anywhere because uh, there's a, a few different scans that are not the same scan on YouTube. This was, I think, an Orion home video release. And it was 4.3. It was like a scanned at high def 4.3. I wouldn't be surprised if this gets a remaster at some point and they, they would scan it back to its original for a DVD release. Yeah, there's got to be so many release. animals we missed out on. <laughs> <laughs> That's all it's going to be. It's just <laughs> More just trees and animals. <laughs> piles of iguanas and spiders. Um, but yeah. Uh, letterboxed. What do you think, Jess? It's going pretty high. I'm putting it, I'm still trying to decide. It's going somewhere around Mad Max for me. Okay. Trying to decide where. It was near Mad Max. 
I'm so, so geographically. It, geographically. <laughs> well, letterbox wise, I'm putting it. I think I'm putting it just above Mad Max and below Die Laughing. Okay. And the only reason is because Die Laughing cracked me up, and this movie <laughs> was competently made and a very sweet story and good acting. But I'm gonna pick a movie that cracks me up every time. Yeah. Richard, um, I am putting this. Uh, it's pretty high, I guess. Not. Uh, I have it just below Blue Lagoon and just above Brewbreaker. Okay. Uh, so that puts it at number twenty-six. That's still pretty high. I feel. Yeah, that's not bad. Um, it's 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 a favorable favorable ruling, um, and I feel like Blue Lagoon and Earthling obviously kind of similar. Yes. In yeah. in concept. Yeah. Uh, yeah, mine's really they close both to get Blue Lagoon. Abandoned too. by elderly men in the wilderness. Yeah, mine's a couple below Blue Lagoon here. Mine's at seventeen though. Uh, for me, it's going a little lower. I think it goes just above Effects and just below Cheech and Chong's next movie. That's really low. I mean, not for me. I guess you liked Effects more than I did. That's fortieth for me out of eighty-seven. That's still pretty low. That's what my that's where my heart wants it. Okay. I think that's everything for this one. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at vintagevideopodcast.com. Please consider rating the show on iTunes to help people find it. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through patreon.com slash vintage video podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Caddyshack, which IMDb describes like so. An exclusive golf course has to deal with a brash new member and a destructive dancing gopher. I like that descriptor, but the brash guy isn't a new member. He's a guest, right? Yeah. Correct. Um, yeah. So tune in next time. We leave you now with the trailer for Caddyshack. Welcome to the Bushwood Country Club. The membership's exclusive. You think I'd join this crummy snobatorium? The help is outrageous. The madness is contagious. Bad language, fooling around on the course, poor caddying. What is whole place? Caddyshack, starring Chevy Chase as Ty Webb. Who is that disgusting man over there? A sportsman who really knows how to score. So, what brings you to this uh, nape of the woods, neck of the wave? How come you're here? Rodney Dangerfield as Al Servant, a big shot. My dinghy's bigger than your whole boat! With an even bigger mouth. <laughs> hey, somebody step on a duck. <laughs> Ed Knight as Judge Smales, a man of dignity <laughs> and a sense of fair play. I've sentenced boys younger than you to the gas chamber. Michael O'Keefe as Danny Noonan. A caddy who wants an education and gets one. You take drugs, Danny? Every day. Good. Cindy Morgan as Lacey Underall. She's got a bad reputation, and she's working hard to keep it. You want to tie me up with some of your ties? And Bill Murray as Carl Spackler. Uh, Just a harmless squirrel, not a plastic explosive or anything. Nothing to be worried about. He's not crazy about gophers, (laughs) but he is crazy. License to kill gophers by the government of the United Nations. And introducing Mr. Gopher as himself. I said freeze, Gopher! Caddyshack, it's all about swinging 
kiss me, you fool. But not on the course. Hey, you want to make $14 the hard way? Ah! Playing a good game. That's all he got out of that one. And talking a better one. Hey, I should have stayed home and played with myself. Taking shots. That was a bum shot. And making time. We couldn't possibly think less of each other. Controlling your drives. Wow! And losing your grip. <laughs> it is! You! Out! Or the man's a menace! Caddyshack. The comedy with...